Severed Angel, the deluxe edition of the self-titled debut album, available now. Pick up your copy today over at SeveredAngel.com. Available on all streaming media platforms. Severed Angel, get ready to ride the dogs of war. And cue the intro. Very disturbing intro. Go ahead, Wayne. Disturbing intro. But, uh, <laughs> today we are joined with On A Reporter, an anchor for KFRCAM San Francisco, writer and co-producer of RKO's Presents the Beatles, writer for Dick Clark's weekly radio countdown. Now she works with television and film as a writer, producer, and casting director. We are joined by Lori Kay, who also has a new book out called Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview. Hello, Lori. Welcome to Welcome. the panel. Hello, how are you? Doing good. good, doing good. I was very looking forward to uh, doing this interview. Uh, I listened to the podcast you did with uh, Chris Jericho uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I was like, we, we got to get her on because uh, we're all Beatles fans and we all love John Lennon stuff. So uh, I was really excited to hear somebody wrote a book and then to find out you were the last one to interview John Lennon was, uh, you know, just blew my mind because I, I didn't know anybody who, you know, had had the last interview with him. So really cool to see uh that was you and glad to have you on the show yes thank well, you well, it's a big you. honor and privilege yeah thank, you. yeah thank you and welcome james i didn't know you were coming well of course i'm gonna come i mean obviously you know this is an, ama an amazing story and uh also someone who has spent time in the bay area like myself where, where i was born at so um it's you know, obviously it's a great time to come in here and do an interview cool very cool all right Lori. so uh one day you're part of something like really special interviewing john lennon and yoko ono and the, um after they've been out of spotlight for like five years and then the next day you're on the today show and you're talking about the death of john lennon what was it like being on the today show talking about uh something that just happened a few hours beforehand it was horrifying to be very honest because not only was i just consumed by the tragedy um but also the fact that I'd been up all night, I hadn't slept in well over 30 hours, probably. And so I was exhausted, and I could barely concentrate at all on asking, uh, you know, answering the questions that they were asking me, it was, it was really hard. And I'd been up all night working um, in the RKO Network New York uh, office, and uh, doing uh, questions being the interviewee instead of the interviewer. So it was it was sort of like a continuation of that. And it it just made everything that much more difficult. Yeah, well, I was watching a little bit of it uh, earlier before the interview. And uh, yeah, I, I could see like you look tired on that interview and you just look like, you know, you went through a lot, of, you know, it's, it, just in a few short hours. So I could only imagine. Um, anybody else want to ask anything else before I continue? Yeah, I actually, um, you know, I, I listen to podcasts. I don't know if in the book, but uh, you uh, you interviewed John Lennon literally hours prior to his 
assassination. And I'm not going to mention the asshole who killed him. Fuck him. Excuse yeah, my language. Yeah, we won't mention him. Yeah, Thank you. I don't ever mention his name. I don't write no, no. his name in my book because I don't want to give him the publicity that he's been after ever since he committed his horrible crime. So I will never say his name and I hope nobody else does either. And we well, respect that totally. We, yeah, we, he doesn't deserve any kind of infamy for what he did. But um, so you, you uh, sat on the story for 43 years. What, um, what made you decide that this was the right time to tell your story, not only the interview, but also your life and music and career. What, what, uh, what was there any sort of thing that prompted that to write a book? Well, a number of things, actually. Everything from my mother's passing several years before to um, the pandemic. Because once the pandemic hit, TV production came to a close practically. So I wasn't working all the time like I had been for years and years and years. So suddenly I had this time to sort of think about, gee, maybe it's time to, to get my memory together and, and, and come out with the book. And so I started to write and immediately started looking for a literary agent, which I, I found one fairly quickly. Um, and then also within several months, this same agent told me, gee, you know, Lori, sorry, I can't deal with you anymore because publishers aren't looking for non-celebrity memoirs these days. There's so many coming out that it's just not something that they're wanting to publish. So I immediately had to start finding my own publisher all on my own. And it was, it was hard. And I was still writing the book when all of a sudden TV production picked up again and I started working again. So that was the end of 2020 and 2021, I, I worked all year and then didn't start writing again and finishing it up and getting published till 2022. Wow. Wow. Did you, um, in the process of writing this book, do you feel you learned something about yourself or your life that you wouldn't have had insight into if you did not take this journey? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's my memoir. It's the story of my early radio-related life and career wrapped around what tragically turned out to be Lennon's last day on the planet, December 8th, 1980, which is also when I co-conducted the RKO radio interview with him and Yoko at the Dakota mere hours before he was shot and killed. And it's not a Beatles or John Lennon bio. It's my memoir, which is very different. Um, although, of course, it does feature details and quotes from not just the John Lennon interview, but so many other interviews I've done, everything from Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney and Wings to George Harrison to Ramones, Talking Heads, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, you name it. You know, they're they're all pretty much in there. And not only that, but my book also features plenty of sex and drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, we noticed. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. <laughs> I, I just had a, I had a quick question while you were doing this book, because like you said that you you probably much started this after your mother had passed away. Did this feel like some kind of like a therapeutic, like a cathartic thing to be going through to kind of go through all your old emotions and, and reminisce and stuff like that to help kind of 
not like a pseudo therapy session, but kind of like help work through some of those things, the traumatic events and everything. Cause I mean, hearing your story about uh, on, on the Jericho podcast, I listened to it too, of that day going to the hospital and, and just seeing Yoko in, you know, just in full tears. I mean, that must've been a incredibly traumatic experience. I mean, I know that that probably, it, it must've helped at least a little bit to get all that writing out into the space and everything and get that out of your system. Well, what it did was it definitely was a step towards getting out of all the guilt that I've been feeling for just about 43 years now. I still feel plenty of guilt. It's still hanging on my head and sitting on my shoulders, but writing my book helped me take a different look at it and, and try and feel better about my experience. Now your mother passed away. Uh, what would if she got to read this book? And I, I know you did it because she wouldn't be able to read it. But what do you think she would think of uh, the book? Well, as you said, I don't think she would read it. She wasn't mm-hmm. that um, into things I was doing. She never listened to me on the radio or any of oh, the really? specials mm-hmm. or news. Yeah, she it was a dysfunctional family upbringing. Yeah. Um, And the thing is, is that I knew in telling stories about her, there were things that she would be insulted by, even if she didn't read it, if somebody read it, who knew her and told her, she would feel bad and I didn't want to make her feel bad. So that was another reason that I waited so long to write the book. Yeah. And you got to reconcile with her? Like, how'd that go? Well, we did get going again after a while because I'm an only child. Mm. So when she got ill and there was nobody else to take care of her, her husband had died also. um, I was the only one who was available to help her and she was somewhat appreciative of that. So that did help us get back together as a mother and daughter and made me look at her and remember so many of the good things that I did love about her and and care about her and you know everything from what a beauty she had been to her sense of humor so that helped yeah Louie got something yeah uh, I love how you went into detail about the uh, points in your life where uh, music played uh, a role in your upbringing you know from talking about being on the beach, hearing uh, the Beach Boys, growing up with the Rolling Stones, growing up with the Beatles. Um, We didn't have that experience um, when they were brand new, when they were, um, dare I say, I wouldn't even know who to compare them to nowadays who would be as impactful as the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. But you got to witness uh, a period of history that most of us wish that we could have seen as it was happening. Um, when you were in the thick of, it, uh, of all of that, um, did you feel like you were a part of some great revolution in culture and art? Or were you always trying to keep it professional and say, no, this is my job. This is what I'm supposed to do. I have to cover this for the radio station or for or whoever it is and just continue and, and just follow that route. Well, I was very lucky because my mother and my grandparents were all into music while I was growing up. So they helped me realize how important it was and very important in my life, even more important 
than, than it was in theirs. And it was something that they were all thrilled to, to have in their lives. My mother had been in love with Frank Sinatra since she was little. And my grandparents were into everything, you know, from, from Broadway musicals to Lawrence Welk to you name it, anything at the time that, that you know, turned them on. So it was, it was something I grew up to get excited about listening to my transistor radio that my grandparents gave me was thrilling. I literally spent every night in bed with my earplugs in and the transistor radio on listening to LA top 40 stations, KHJ, another RKO station, sister station of KFRC, where I worked later on. And then I also listened to KRLA. And it was it was thrilling because I basically was so excited to, to get to know disc jockeys, which I felt was going on, as well as musicians and songs and learn all about music. And so by the time I actually got to the point where I could have my own records and go to live concerts, and that turned into eventually working in the music industry, it was it was beyond belief. It was nothing I ever expected that would happen because I had no um, music-related um, people to help me as I was growing up, thinking that I could get a job or get a career or anything. I had no contacts like that. I basically did it all on my own, and it was thrilling. From, from working in radio for so long, what do you think radio means now? Do you think it means the same like it used to back when you were in it, or is it completely different now? I wouldn't say completely different, but I will say somewhat different, hmm. ordering on very different, because people now are into listening to music on, you know, Amazon music or whatever yeah, Spotify or iTunes yeah, stuff, yeah yeah whatever they Pandora whatever they want to listen to so they're not necessarily listening to radio as often as not only as I did years ago but as I still do hmm. I can't get in my car without listening to the radio it just yeah. it doesn't make sense not to listen to the radio and that's funny because my husband always says oh let's listen to you know Amazon or let's listen to Spotify and I said no, honey, you want to listen to the radio because you want to hear if a disc jockey says something, you want to hear if there's a, a news uh, story coming up in between, yeah. because that's important, important yeah. to me anyway, as a right. former newscaster. So that's why I listen to the radio. <laughs> uh, actually, we got a, a question here from Colin Madden. Um, he says, thanks for doing this, Lori. Have you ever read Madeline Baccaro's Yoko Ono book? Not only have I read it, I adore Madeline Baccaro, and mm -hmm. she's an amazing writer. And when you get my book, you will see that on the back cover, Madeline Baccaro has reviewed it and given oh, really? me an extremely complimentary comment. Yes, she's been very supportive and helpful, and um, I try to be the same for her. And, uh, you know, you like to stay friends with other writers, especially ones in the same field, and her book is great. Yeah, very right, cool. Uh, so you were you ran away from home. Uh, were you how scared were you? You know, being on your own out there with uh, without anybody, any family. 
I don't think scared is the word. <laughs> I think excited <laughs> is the word. Excited. I was thrilled. I couldn't wait. I'd been waiting for years to have a successful runaway. Yeah. And when I was finally able to do it, it was um, amazingly intense. It was It was exactly what I wanted. And the funny thing is, I sensed that my mother and my evil stepfather <laughs> were probably as excited to have me out of their lives as I was to have them out of mine yeah. for the time being. So hey, you seem like down. a you seem like a handful back then. <laughs> maybe, I was. Slightly, maybe slightly maybe slightly Lori. Oh. Uh, and then in the book too you also revealed that you actually went to Bali what was your time like in Bali I mean that's that's a huge move. Well the reason I went to Bali was because that year before, I'd had a horrible accident while I was in college at UC Santa Cruz, and I had completely screwed up my ankle mm. and my foot, broken it, and it was very hard to recover. And I was told that I should have major surgery, which not only didn't I want to do, but I didn't have health insurance that would cover mm. it. Mm. And so I tried to get other advice on what to do. And one person told me, well, what you should do is do something like Balinese dance, because that will help get your calf and your ankle and your foot back in place once the cast is off. And they said, well, you can go to UC Berkeley. They have um, Indonesian uh, bands there and dance teachers, and you can do that. And I checked it out, but I realized no, that's not what I want to do. I want to go get the real thing. So I managed to get a, a ticket to uh, to do that through uh, Stanford. Even though I wasn't a student there, I was able to check in and become the U only UCSC student to, uh, to go um, and deal with, um, with what they, they did. They, they sent people to, um, to Indonesia and other places in Asia, um, and what you had to do in order to get the ticket and get your expenses paid and a place to stay was teach English as a second language. So I got my license to teach English as a second language and went to Bali for a year and studied Balinese dance. And it sure did. Oh, Wayne? Connections. Totally bad. repair my, me an, an incredible, um, experience. Bali was incredible. And one of the cool things about it too was years later when interviewing John Lennon, hearing him talk about how he thought Bali was incredibly cool and beautiful. Yeah. So it was just another thing that I felt I had in common with him once I met him. Yeah, very cool. A lot of connections. Do you still talk to or uh, did you talk to that family after you left Bali that you were staying with? Um, briefly, we were in touch, um, not talking, but, but by, by mail, mm. but, uh, but then it sort of had to drop off because I was so busy with school and, and then eventually my, my internship at KFRC in the newsroom. So I sort of had to put that behind me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah man, you got something? Well, I was going to see if James did, but if he doesn't, um, so uh, what was interesting is um, I think you're the only person outside of the guy who did the ABC special on uh, the Beatles. Well, besides Peter Jackson and 
Beatles anthology. I think you're the only person who's talked to three of the Beatles. And ironically, the one Beatle you have never talked to is Mr. Ringo Starr. Um, but do. you've talked to John Lennon and Paul McCartney and George Harrison. What I found interesting um, in your in your observation was both George Harrison and John Lennon were kind of the same place at the same time where they both wanted to take time off and raise a family. That was unheard of back then. A matter of fact, taking five years was considered career suicide when you had albums coming out once a year, even twice a year. So I thought that was interesting. Um, you as a, as a journalist, how do you set yourself from not turning into a total fangirl to being professional when you're standing in front of a beetle for, that's bigger than any president? It's a beetle, Lori. It's <laughs> you know how did you how did you maintain uh, you know? Would you say that about Pete Best? <laughs> no, but I, I mean, didn't I, think so. Yeah, but Pete Best played with the Beatles. Nobody, only Pete Best can say that. I can't say that. You know. So I'll give him his props, but I mean, Lori, you t that's like talking to the route Mount Rushmore of rock and roll. You were just missing one, one guy. That's incredible. I'm not sure I was able to never be a fangirl, to be honest. Even when I interviewed George Martin, Beatles producer, the man who made the Beatles sound basically. Yeah. And it was it was just always so exciting. I had plenty of questions to ask because as a reporter newscaster, that was one thing I, I did all the time as interviews and write down questions and come up with ones as I was talking. But it was, it was always being a fan. There was never a time when I was not a fan. And I need to tell you that my interviews with John Lennon and Paul McCartney were with my RKO team of Dave Sholin, and uh, he was the, um, the music director at KFRC when I was there, and um, Ron Hummel, who was our technical producer and an amazing guy as well. And then with John Lennon, we also had Bert Keen from Warner Brothers Geffen Records, so that was really exciting. But my interview with George Harrison was a solo uh, interview, and um, and that was extremely exciting. They were all extremely exciting. I can't, to be honest, think of one interview I've done that wasn't extremely exciting. They were all amazing. I love, I love interviewing rock stars and I love interviewing authors and you know, news people and, and everything. I mean, because I'm into music and being on the radio, of course, musicians were my favorite, but it was all incredibly exciting for me uh kyle man wants to know very oh go ahead uh, uh colin colin wants to know if you still talk to dave Shore. um yes yeah. constantly and um and uh we uh have done a podcast together and we uh email all the time and he also left an incredibly complimentary um comment on uh my book which is on the back cover as well so it was very exciting. Very good. Continue, uh, Manny, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying that was very cool that you interviewed not only three Beatles, but uh, also George Martin. I mean, that's, uh, I don't even know what to say. I, I didn't ever interview him. I'm, I'm 
you know, speechless because there's no band, you know, well, I love the Rolling Stones. This, we are, this is mostly a hard rock podcast, heavy metal, but we all love music because it's not just hard rock. We all love music, the, but you can't duplicate the impact of the Beatles as a cultural force. I think what the closest, maybe Elvis Presley and Bob Dylan a little down the line, I'm not, I'm just talking about cultural impact. I'm not even talking about just music, just the way people viewed the world. I don't, I don't even think that's possible anymore because we're all so fragmented. So I, I just think it's amazing that, and then when you think about it, when the Beatles broke up, John Lennon was 30 years old. You know, I mean, when you think how young he was and him and Ringo were the oldest Beatle, they were 30 years old. It's incredible. And um, it's, it's funny because they weren't that old, but they lived a lot in that short span of time. What was it, like seven or eight years the Beatles were together? Yeah, yeah. So 52 much. to 70, right? And yeah. They did, yeah, and they did so much. And then Laurie, like, like towards the end of the book, where you start, uh, he starts talking about like him just wanting to settle down and, and be with his son. It seems like he's like almost like 60 years old, the way he's talking, like he's an old man, like he wants to settle down, but he was only what in his 40s? Only he 40. Was, was 40. He had just yeah. turned 40 okay. in October. Right. But the thing about that is also mm-hmm. he was in some way feeling rather guilty about not being able to be a father for his first son from his uh, first wife, no. Cynthia. Julian, right. Because no. he was a Beatle and not only were they having to record all the time and write music all the time and go on tour, um, but he was very young. So he he didn't want to be a house husband. You know, that wasn't what he was up to. He was into being a rock musician. And so now he had the opportunity to be a house husband as he called himself and raise his son and who he called almost his twin because they were born on the same day, October 9th. And, um, and that was very exciting for him and super cool. I, I think it's um, tragic. Um, I remember watching a behind the music special on Julian Lennon back in the late nineties, early two thousands. And there was a period of reconciliation between him and John and they were supposed to uh, get together before the unfortunate incident happened. Um, I have to admit, um, being born um, in 1980, a uh, month and a half before the incident occurred, um, my first experience to any uh, Lennon was Julian watching uh, his music video for Much Too Late on a UHF channel here in, uh, here in New York when I, where I was born and raised in Queens. Um, not realizing that he was a son of a Beatle. Like I had heard of the Beatles, but I never heard the Beatles. And um, I have to thank my high school music teacher for really getting me into the Beatles and just seeing what great songs that they had, great melodic passages. And I, as a guitarist, I can't help but be fixated on the, uh, the greatness of George Harrison. I uh, just feel like he really brought their songs to life with his solos uh, because they fit the structure of the song without deviating from it. I think the Beatles were probably like the first band to really incorporate guitar solos into songs and make them part of the song. Nowadays, you uh, do have a lot of people who like to use the guitar as an extension, 
of a certain male body part, which I will not mention. <laughs> but uh, George, I feel like, did it right. You know, he had that je ne sais quoi. He had that uh, uh, the chef's kiss of uh, guitar playing. But um, I guess uh, my my. I guess the, the, the question that I want to ask is um, with and and sorry, this is this is kind of uh, <laughs> this is uh, a, a bit difficult to ask. I'm sorry. Um, knowing that the impact of the of the incident and, and people were still talking about this even 10 years after it happened, because I do recall there being a 10 year anniversary of the event in New York City, which was um, headlined by some of the uh, major pop stars. Um, and the impact is still felt today, 43 years later. Um, I, 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 what, what I, what I'm basically asking is, um, is it is it easier for you to be able to process all this all this today and find some semblance of peace with with it with 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 everything? Not necessarily. Well, the th the thing is is I did end up moving to New York five years following John Lennon's assassination, and it was very difficult for me. I couldn't go to the neighborhood at all it was it was just too too tragic and and just made me feel so horrible so i pretty much stayed all on the other side of the city and i i still even you know years later going back to visit feel somewhat the same way it just still takes me back to what i consider even 43 years later, to be both the best and worst day of my life. And I don't know that that's ever going to change. Trying to trying to move the subject, yeah, move it to a different subject. That's really heavy. I just wanted to try to make it a little bit lighter. Um, I was reading, uh, you know, the people in the news department uh, during your time there. Did you have any good uh, Rennell Brooks moon things? Because I know I'm a huge Giants fan, so I hear her voice all the time listening to the AT&T park, uh, you know, her, her announced the players' names. Do you have any good stories about her? Uh, no. Um, oh. I'm sorry. Renell Brooks, the, the announcer, for, the public address announcer for, for the Giants? The San Francisco Giants? I honestly don't remember because, to be very honest, I wasn't someone who did a lot of sports mm -hmm. stories. Um, they, there was a reporter who pretty much concentrated on all the sports. And although I did go to some baseball games, that wasn't my thing. Right. It's I more just, the music-related reporter. I, I, thanks, thanks for bringing the show down, James. Uh, man, you got to yeah, yeah, thanks. Wait, all right, never mind. All right, I'll, I'll try to make it lighthearted. Sorry I went too deep. Yeah, Wayne. Yeah. No, I uh, first of all, I, again, thank you for coming on. It's such a, it's such an interesting story. You know, if you were to write that down on paper and and give it to a screenwriter, they'd probably reject it because they wouldn't believe it. You know, not way. now they're on strike. Well, that too, <laughs> but um, you know, it, and it's funny listening to John Lennon's music. It occurred to me I was reading your book, 
when I was younger, I didn't totally get it. I didn't have any lot of life experience. And a lot of his solo work was so introspective, so personal. Even on Double Fantasy, you know, Woman, which is a love song toward Yoko, watching the wheels, you know, where he's talking about watching, just taking taking a step back and, you know, letting the fame go. And, you know, did the John Lennon that you met was as he is introspective as his music was at that time. How did you find the John Lennon you met? You know, what did you, as a human being, what did you think of him? Forget well, the artist, just as a man. The John Lennon I met 40 years ago was incredibly intelligent, funny, and determined, along with his wife, Yoko Ono, to improve the relationships between men and women going forward. Because as he saw it, the 70s had been pretty horrible. That was his bad time when he had his, what they called his lost weekend in LA, away from Yoko. And so here he was back with her now, and they wanted to do everything that that they had done, you know, show show other couples how to have a dialogue between them, how to improve their relationship. And even though he wasn't ready to say, oh yeah, we have a perfect relationship, he was still ready to show along with Yoko uh, couples how they could improve their own relationship by improving their dialogue. And that's how double fantasy was basically put together. When John would come up with his song and sing it to Yoko. And then she, a couple hours later, would come up with one that it prompted her to do and sing to him. And they would go back and forth like that. And that's how the incredible songs came out. And they each had favorites that, that each other had written. It was great. Seems like yeah, it seems chance. like to be a call and response between, you're right, in uh, looking at the album, especially when you take a fresh look at it, you have a John Lennon song, um, Woman, and then she'll respond. Again, instead of double fantasy, it should have been, you know, dialogue, or maybe it should have been called because it's definitely a musical dialogue between two artists. And what's incredible, because you don't get a lot of shit about breaking up the Beatles, which is nonsense. The Beatles broke up because they've been living in each other's pockets for eight years and they just grown apart and nothing to do with Yoko. But she got a lot of crap. Um, and it's funny, I don't really like her solo material, but on that album, I kind of like it. It's a little ahead of its time because it's almost new wavy in some of those tunes, you know, kind of what the B-52s were doing at the time. And I know John Lennon loved Rock Lobster, which blows me away that he loved that so much but you know which is also uh, shows a lot about John Lennon as an artist that he was looking forward whatever you may think of the B-52s that the B-52s in 1980 was considered wow very different groundbreaking um did you find John Lennon also to be an adventurous person at that point in time when you met him adventurous in terms of music he listened to you mean you, not only music he listened to but music he was creating at that point in time? Well, yes. And the thing was, he hadn't really listened to music for years before. He didn't want to listen to new music. And even though his assistants tried to keep playing him things and saying, oh, you should hear this, he didn't want to. But finally, he ended up doing so. And um, it, it was inspirational to him because he heard what he thought was people imitating Yoko. 
which was amazing, you know? <laughs> so he was excited about that. And he was, he was just ready to keep going forward, to keep going up. And that was amazing because having recorded Double Fantasy, they had enough songs already to do the second album. And they were already talking about what they would put on the third album. And it was so exciting to hear. Well, what could have been is what all I think about, you know, now. It's amazing. Now, Wayne, what do you got? I'm, I'm going to give James another chance. No wrestling and no sports talk. Yeah, no sports, James. For God's <laughs> sake. I'm not saying nothing. <laughs> we give James, we give James a hard time. Who He's in a great. The thing, and this is what I get. Anyway, um, no, actually, uh, I really enjoyed the uh, the story you, you told about how John met Yoko. Was that an, uh, was that an art exhibit? Um, even though he wasn't a big fan of the art itself, he, you know, he, he was there and got mesmerized by that. Uh, I always think that's a very, um, you know, it's, it's, it shows how he was as a character that, you know, he was, he was compassionate and almost, you know, like, even if it wasn't his thing, he was still out there to experience it because maybe he'd catch an inspiration or it would, you know, it would trigger something else in his life that he would enjoy. So um any any let's see what the best way to put this um thanks for putting me on the spot wayne wasn't ready for a question but uh um but like uh anything any other artists that you interviewed or anything that would have like a not like a the sit the same mindset but a very similar um you know way of thinking or wavelength of, of that type of thought process I'm not sure I really understand your question. Like, like, uh, like that had like that adventurous, like kind of like had that adventurous, but like kind spirit that, that John Lennon had. Well, I, I always found good things about the people I interviewed and everyone from, you know, Paul McCartney to George Harrison told similar stories with John, for example, about their interest in Elvis Presley and rock and roll uh, friends that they had who'd passed away. So that was that was very inspirational to me. Um, but John was an amazing interview and, and very unique. And it was wonderful to have Yoko with him too because she would throw in some comments as well and John would be excited to hear her do that. And it was, it was just, it was a wonderful time to spend with them hours, you know, and it made me think, wow, I've made friends. These are going to be amazing friends for the rest of my life. And I was absolutely sure that was what was go going to happen because by the end of the interview, we'd all made plans to get together in a couple of weeks when John and Yoko were going to be out in California. And we were all going to go out to dinner at Yoko's favorite Japanese restaurant. And so Dave and Ron and Bert and I were all excited about that. And I was thinking, I have so much in common with John and Yoko, even though we're all different people from different countries, born in different decades, I still feel so much in common with them. So it was, it was just something I was looking forward to the minute, the minute we talked about it. Have you ever got to talk to Yoko after that? Um, no, I haven't. The the thing is, is that one I once I I heard that John had been shot, um, and I 
went to the hospital uh, and looked through the, the big glass door and saw Yoko yeah. inside holding on to somebody who at the time I didn't know who it was, but afterwards I found out it was David Geffen yeah. sobbing hysterically. And I wanted to go in and hug her and say, oh, Yoko, I'm so sorry. But I realized that she was so tragic. Oh, yeah. John hadn't just been shot, that John was killed and she knew it. And even though they hadn't announced that yet, news, radio or TV or anything, I just knew that that would happen. And I didn't want to go in there and make her see me and get even more upset because obviously I would remind her of the tragedy. Right. So instead, I um, went outside and called um, my former news director, who was now the head of the RKO Radio Network headquarters in, in New York, and uh, told her what was going on. And she said, get up here immediately. And I went there, and that's where I worked all night, basically being the interviewee mm -hmm. for newspapers and radio, you know, all over the country, all over the world. And... Um, and then on the next morning on the Today Show. And that was how that day ended for me. Yeah, wow. Well, James, this is how you lighten the mood up a little bit. Uh, two of my favorite stories in the book, uh, a funny thing, uh, one with uh, Jerry Garcia and uh, one with the Ramones. Tell the Jerry Garcia story, because I think that's very funny. And the way you describe him <laughs> coming up to you. <laughs> well, I... I describe it quite clearly in my book. Yeah. Um, what happened was... I have I was, a book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. I was super excited because, wow, I was all set to go see Iggy Pop. And I loved Iggy Pop. Yeah. And because I was a huge David Bowie fan back then, this was in 77. And I was a huge Iggy Pop fan as well. So I got to the club, which was Bill Graham's uh, Old Waldorf in San Francisco. And my date and I were there. We were so excited. And of course, I'd read and heard so many things about Iggy Pop in concert that sometimes he, you know, basically, I don't want to say anything bad, but did, uh, did say it. Say it. Yeah, we're, yeah, this is this is this is the place yeah. where you can say yeah. it. You don't watch this show. <laughs> in in public in front of the audience and you know and then and then also um did things like cut himself and bled and throw things at the audience and so I was super excited to see what you know this amazing punk was going to be doing at his show and I was so excited and I was right in front with my date and we were all excited and Iggy was singing and all of a sudden this weird, creepy old guy came up to me <laughs> and was asking me, "What? what's this? What, what are you here for? Why, why do you like punk? What's it got to do? And I looked at him thinking, who the hell are you? Leave me alone. <laughs> and it just, he kept bugging me and it just kept bothering me more and more. And I gave him a dirty look and he said, well, if you really like punk, you know, I can take you backstage afterwards and, and you can meet Iggy Pop. And I looked at him and said, yeah, who are you? You know, mm. somebody's grandfather. And he looked at me kind of sad. And all of a sudden my date looked at me and said, 
Lori, don't you know who that guy is? And I said, no, he's just some creepy guy trying to, you know, get on top of me and deal with me. And he said, no, look at his hand. And I looked at his hand and all I saw was one of his fingers was all screwed up and it didn't mean anything to me. And my date said, Lori, that's Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead. And I was like, ew, because I was not a Grateful Dead fan. I was anything (laughs) but a Grateful Dead fan. And Bill Graham, who was a friend of pretty much everybody at KFRC at the time, had given me tickets to go see Iggy Pop and was always trying to get me to go see the Grateful Dead too, which he was always promoting. And I kept saying, no, I'm not a fan. And he kept saying, yes, if you want tickets to this other concert, you have to take my Grateful Dead tickets. And so most of the time I would take them and give them away to somebody else at the station (laughs) because it just wasn't my thing. And although years later, I did go see the Grateful Dead and became a bit more of a fan of them. But um, that one conversation I had with the guy who I found out later was Jerry Garcia. I insulted him and I feel bad about it because I'd never got to apologize and interview him or anything before he died. So I felt very bad. Yeah. Yeah, I I just thought that was funny though. (laughs) Um, I think it's really cool that you mentioned Bill Graham. I mean, that's a name that's synonymous with, uh, you know, rock concerts throughout the, especially the the 70s and 80s, you know, all the bands that he had booked on, you know, on on bills in California from everyone from, from, like you said, the Grateful Dead to Santana to Journey to, you know, Metallica. I mean, you know, you don't have a concert promoter around nowadays with that kind of prestige like Bill Graham. I mean, you have Live Nation and Ticketmaster. That's it. I mean, they've pretty much monopolized the entire uh, concert arena. But with 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 knowing, uh, you know, who Bill Graham was at the time, I mean, with with uh, with the concerts that he was booking, um, I, I just feel like a, a lot of people, if they wanted to book a, a good concert, would have had a lot to learn from him. But, you know, if, if you could explain to anyone who doesn't know who Bill Graham is, if you could just give like a, a brief, a brief description of like how I don't want to say how much power, because I feel like that's 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 a bit ridiculous. But um, how much credibility he had? A lot, because not only was he a major venue owner and a band manager, but he was so excited about bringing bands to play, especially new bands and and getting them to play in cool clubs for the very first time and important concerts. And the very first show that I remember, you know, basically hearing about Bill Graham and thinking how important he was, was when he um, promoted and and put together the Rolling Stones Nicaragua Benefit Concert in Los Angeles um, back in um, early 1973, after um, Nicaragua um, had a horrible, horrible situation um, Uh, where not only people were killed um, in an earthquake, but but left homeless 
and it was awful. And so he wanted to get money to them and, and help them however he could. So he got the Rolling Stones to do a benefit concert for them because the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger's wife, Bianca, was Nicaraguan. So it made sense that he would do that to help, you know, her, her relatives and, and fellow uh, country uh, people. And, um, and then the opening act um, for that show, Santana, um, also had a band member who was Nicaraguan. So that made sense as well. And I was really lucky to um, win contest, uh, a contest that gave me tickets to that concert. So not only was it my very first time seeing the Rolling Stones, I was no longer a virgin when it came to, to Rolling Stones live shows, but it also was my very first experience thinking about what a great person Bill Graham was and how cool it was of him to do this for a country that had been caught up, you know, in, in horror. And um, it was thrilling. And, and that's, that's basically Bill Graham. He was not just a very cool person and very considerate um, and caring about musicians, but about people in general. And it was so amazing for me to get to know him once I worked at KFRC, because he seemed to drop by the station almost weekly, if not more often, you know, bringing tickets to shows for, for us and to talk about things he had coming up. And it was just, it was very exciting. And um, one of my, my favorite parts about working at KFRC. If I'm correct, uh, one of the venues of the many that he was responsible for, uh, the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco? Yes. Yeah, there's some uh, great concert footage uh, on YouTube of bands in the 70s who played there. And I have to say, it's some of the I don't know. I don't know what magic was about that that stage and, and, and that speaker, but it captured some of these bands best performances like, you know, before they hit their peak when they were at their. I, I guess, for, for example, um, I, I do love the band Kiss. I grew up on them. And there's video footage of them playing the Winterland Ballroom from their 1974, early 75 tour. And it's the best live concert footage that I've ever seen in them. And it's in black and white. But I mean, the Winterland just seemed like it, it seemed like if there was any venue that you wanted to be a part of other than CBGB's and like, let's say 1977, it seemed like it was the Winterland. Well, Winterland was very cool. And concerts there were very cool. It was wonderful to be able to go there. And um, but there were so many other things that, that Bill Graham did as well. And I really liked the old Waldorf best of all, to be honest, because it was a smaller club and it gave me the opportunity to see amazing bands in a much smaller environment. Everyone from ACDC to Elvis Costello to Tom Petty, Iggy Pop, you know, it was it was super cool. If things hadn't worked out with a publisher, would you have considered um, self-publishing such as I know um, my sister-in-law just published self-published her books through Amazon. Would that have been an avenue that you would have considered undertaking had it not worked out with the publisher? No, because to be honest, even though some people are so good at it, for example, Madeline Baccaro self-published um, and do a great job that's not something that I felt comfortable doing because 
I had so much else to do that I couldn't see doing it on my own. And I wanted a publisher. I wanted them to read it. I wanted them to edit it. I didn't want to have to be responsible for finding someone to do that on my own. And there's a lot of people who are into self-publishing and think that it's much more worthwhile because then they don't have to deal with looking for a literary agent or a traditional publisher, but that's not me. And my publisher is a an independent traditional publisher, a small publisher, but still so far it's worked out well. So hopefully it will continue to and the book will do well. And when I say do well, I mean, people will like it. That's the main thing. You know, that's what I really want to happen. And I'm very lucky because I've already run, won a Writer's Digest Award um, for my, uh, my book in their memoir category. So hopefully that is a good sign. I hope so. Uh, a few more questions before we get out of here. Colin wanted to know, um, do you interview Paul and, and John at the same time, like the same period of time? Not really. Um, Paul McCartney and Linda and their latest lineup of Wings, um, our RKO, RKO team went to London to interview in June of 79. Okay. And that was about six months after I had interviewed George Harrison. And I didn't interview um, John Lennon with the RKO team until December of 1980. So that was about a year and a half later. Okay. Yeah, because he wanted to, wanted you to compare like the contrast from where they were in their lives at that point. But well, they they had children, they had wives that they were in love with, they had a way all, uh, all of them of looking back on the loss of Elvis Presley and um, other friends of theirs who'd, who'd passed away, musicians, everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Keith Moon, you know, it, and it, it, it made them quite sad. And um, it, was, it was wonderful to talk to all of them, you know, over that two-year period. So yes, I guess in a way it was all sort of within the same era, but not you know, within a week of each other. Right, right, right. Uh, and just to let you know, he actually pre-ordered your book on Kindle just now. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, well, Colin. Well. You rock. <laughs> no, Colin's a great guy. Yeah, well, since these are your memoirs, let me talk about you for a minute. So uh, what uh, was, how old were you when you first got into music, would you say? Um, three. Three, so that young? Yeah. Your first memory was music. I think it's great. Maybe even before. Probably, probably. Yeah. I think there's some of us that music is something to do dishes with. And there's us people like us, including all of us, that it's not just background noise. It's part of your life. It's part of your makeup. It's part of your identity. Um, so how did you go from, in your my travel, being a fan, before, before you interviewed John Lennon, you got into radio. How did that come about? Well, that was very exciting because when I got back from Bali, instead of going back to my original college, which was UCSC, University of California at Santa Cruz, I went to UC Berkeley, 
to study journalism. And there I was in my very first news writing class. I turned in my first assignment and the professor, the teacher said to me, Lori, what are you doing in this class? You already know how to write. And I was so excited to hear that. And he said, what you need to do is go find an internship because that will lead to getting a job. So I went to the journalism department office and looked for internships at major newspapers, but it was already too close to the summer. So there weren't any left, but there was an, an ad up for KFRC in San Francisco looking for an intern for their news department. They'd never had one before. So I thought, oh, that will be perfect. Music and news. And I immediately applied and got an interview within a few days and was immediately hired to be their first intern and went to the the the, the radio station that um, end of that June. And it was so very exciting to be there and to start writing the first specials that, that aired early on Sunday morning on the um, uh, public affairs uh, uh, area. And so, and the news director was so excited saying, oh my God, I can't wait to voice your specials for you. These are incredible. You're, you're a great writer. And I said, great, I want to get a, a job here. And she said, well, when we have one, I'll definitely give you a call. And after the internship ended, I had uh, a month, a couple months go by where I had to get other news related jobs. Uh, and then the news director, Joe Interante, called me and said, Lori, we have a job to offer you, news editor. So I immediately started there and it was very exciting. It led to everything that I ever wanted to do, rock radio specials, because thanks to Joe's recommendation of me to Dave Sholin, I got to write RKO Presents the Beatles, which was the longest Beatles special ever done in the United States. At that time, it was originally 14 hours. And um, after it aired, we were able to syndicate it um, so that it aired all over the place. And we um, elongated it to 17 hours. So that was amazing. And then I got to be on the air at KFRC after being on the air at stations other stations in the country and be a newscaster on KFRC, it was, it was thrilling. It was the best part of my life. I ha I'm happy to say. Can anybody hear that, that Beatles broadcast anywhere or is that gone? Well, I don't know that it's around anymore, um, to be honest, because RKO isn't in business anymore. Right, right. Yeah. So um, it might be illegally in part on things like YouTube, mm. but um, it's not it's not being released as far as I know. Mm. Well, I'm sure some Beatles fanatic has it on bootleg, but Wayne asked a question I was going to ask. And I guess before you part, uh, I heard that uh, I, I didn't realize this until uh, the Jericho interview um, that it, did I understand right that the full John Lennon interview has never been fully released in any format, print, or audio or anything like that? Is that accurate? Never legally released, yes. RKO uh, Radio Network had me write uh, the special 
just a couple days after Lenin was assassinated. And that aired six days after John was killed on Sunday, December 14th. It's called John Lennon, The Man, The Memory was the name I gave it. And Dave Stolen voiced it and Ron Hummel produced it, you know, put in the interview bites and, and music and everything, but it didn't have the full interview. It was a three hour special, but I had done a lot of research and a lot of writing and a lot of dedication to Yoko and, and Sean, of course. And, um, and the, the full interview itself has never been released. It is, as I said, illegally posted. Various. I I really want to commend you on your professionalism for being able to do that so soon after the tragedy, because um, um, having only met you, you know, for for this recording, for this live for this live episode of Ratsa Review, um, that's not easy. You know, um, the 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 grieving that you must have gone through while you were doing that you know, for, for your radio station and possibly having to hold that in while you're doing that. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I had been recently through uh, a state of grieving myself, which is why talking to you about this subject is hitting home for me. But uh, I, I really just wanted to give you a kudos and recognize um, your professionalism for, uh, for going through with this. So well, thank not, you. Not, 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 with the, not, not with our interviewing you. I mean, with you doing your job. Yeah, we're after sorry you came happened. on our show. <laughs> yeah, we feel bad you we're came kidding. on our show. <laughs> no, we're kidding. But, so. um, but uh, just wanted to say that also, you mentioned before that you still love to listen to the radio. Who are some of the artists of today that you like? Well, if I can be honest, I listen to classic rock radio. They're oh, wrong with that. There, there are some bands that I really like these days. Um, one of them is Dirty Honey. They get played a lot and uh, here in LA on, um, on uh, KLOS. And another band that I like that isn't played so much on the radio, the Alalas, I like a lot. Um, but to be honest, I'm more of a classic radio fan. It's always going to be the Beatles, the Stones, David Bowie, and so many others that I completely listen to forever and ever, ACDC, and so many other heavy metal bands. And, and I also love a lot of classic country artists too. You know, everybody from Garth Brooks to Dr. John, I mean, you name them, I, I love them, so. I thought you were gonna say Waylon Jennings. <laughs> what, what about the band Seven Angel? Have you heard oh, of Oh, come on, Wayne, why are you talking oh, about that? <laughs> it was only a matter of time. Yeah, I, that was not a segue for the record. Yeah, yes, it was. But but you should listen to Severed Angel anyway. Any new band that you haven't heard of, listen to Severed Angel. That that was not a segue for the record. For the record, <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. Have to, so have to repeat it twice. Um, one thing that I all of us grew uh, grew up with was you know hearing, oh my God, is this band ever going to reunite? Is that band ever going to reunite? And of course, you know, you had um the original black sabbath you know the, that reunion being talked about forever um kiss obviously with the original four members the three remaining members of the beatles um i was on a podcast recently where i was asked that if if john and george were still alive 
to this day, uh, would they have reunited? My answer was no, because I think what they did for when they did it was perfect for that place and time. And magic like that can't be replicated because of the whole, you know, lightning striking twice in the same place. It doesn't always happen. But, uh, you know, and, and I'm not and, and, and I'm somebody who believes in musical mitosis. I think that if something breaks up, if, if a band breaks up and the members break off into doing their own thing, then they create their own kind of greatness. Obviously, it happened with Ringo. It happened with George and it happened with John and it happened with Paul McCartney and Wings. Um, does it drive you nuts whenever you hear, you know, you know, oh, my gosh, what if they are reunited? You know, should they have reunited? I mean, do, do you do you have you ever heard um, those kinds of questions being asked? Well, you know, people always ask me, do I think they would have gotten back together? And I think you're probably right. They they wouldn't have. They might have done maybe a, a jam or two, um, but I don't know that it would have been all four of them necessarily. Who knows? I honestly can't say. But the thing is, is that, you know, John was so excited about performing with Yoko and making music with her and Paul with Linda. So it would have been difficult for them to say, no, I'm not going to be with my best friend and my wife, you know, who was my wife. I'm going to go back with my Beatles brothers. And, yeah. and I don't think that would have happened. That live concert video that he did at Madison Square Garden was uh, a great concert film that uh, when I used to work at VH1 on uh, back at Viacom, when we had VH1 Classic, we used to show that concert all the time. And it, and it was a great view. Um, my final question is, if John was alive today, what do you think he would say about the state of the world right now? Well, he wouldn't be involved in politics at all because he made a point of telling us that he did not vote and never planned to. And I think he would probably be talking about relationships between men and women. And that would be something important to him still to this day would be my guess. But other than that, I would imagine that he would also be excited about his sons being older and being talented on their own and talk about them a lot too. So that's just the guess that I have. I think that's a, a great, uh, a great assumption. And, you know, again, that's awesome to recognize both Julian and Sean. Thank you for that. My pleasure. What do you and think about you. this? Yeah, no problem. What do you think about this new song that uh, this new Beatles song where John Lennon is going to be singing on it that Paul McCartney is working on it? What do you think about that? I'll know when I hear it. Yeah. Are you are you excited to hear that or do you not want to hear it? Because it's going to be like an AI thing involved. And a lot of people. Are no. Against this whole, no, AI. No AI. How does no AI? Okay. Yeah. 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 I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm I mean, free as a bird that they did in 1990 it was really cool because those were john lennon demos but you know it's, it was created somewhat organically as you can with a tape somebody's no longer here 
but you know AI to try to recreate something that doesn't exist or someone who isn't here. I'm not for that. I'm sure it's all in good intentions, but that's my opinion, Lori, not not anyone else's, I guess, on the panel. James. Um actually I didn't have anything. I was just enjoying right, great. the uh <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. So you're done. Yeah, what done. about you, Wayne? Okay. Do you have another question? Yeah, sure. you, yeah. Yes, I do. Actually, I have three more things here, everybody. and they're going to be quick. Um, since you did talk to Yoko Ono about like a half hour or so before John came in the room, uh, was it easy to just get into a conversation with her? How did that conversation go? It was amazing, and I describe it a lot in the book. Um, it was very exciting because I was a fan of hers, uh, conceptual art, and her book, Grapefruit that I had brought a copy with me and she was excited to see that I had. And I think she was also excited to see me because I was a female and everybody else in the room was a male. So I think that made her happy. And yeah, I, I really felt great being with Yoko. Yeah. And uh, you were told before the interview did not bring up the Beatles and the main focus was, was supposed to be the double fantasy album. And John did end up bringing up the Beatles himself. Was there anything you wanted to ask him about the Beatles that you didn't get to? Well, we were told not to bring it up and not to ask questions. So even though John brought up the Beatles, um, specifically um, Paul and and uh, you know how he met Paul and how George and Ringo ended up being in the band as well. Um, that was exciting, but we still knew that we weren't supposed to jump in with questions about the Beatles because we didn't want to piss him off at all. Yeah, so we, yeah, yeah. Was there anything you would have liked to have known though? Well, sure, I would have loved to have asked him questions about the Beatles and you know how exciting it was and mm. the concert and how weird it was when you know, nobody stopped yelling and screaming for the Beatles. <laughs> right. Because I was at a Beatles concert in 1966 as a kid right. at Dodger Stadium. And all I remember was screaming. And I could <laughs> see them, but barely because we had the, the biggest, highest seats way up and um, couldn't hear the music practically. So, you know, that's that's something that I, I would understand that would probably be very upsetting to them. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because my mother-in-law um, saw the Beatles when they played at Shea Stadium and she said all she could hear was the roar of the crowd over the instruments. She couldn't, she could barely hear anything else. She saw them, but when you have however many people Shea Stadium fills or filled, it's no longer there anymore over, you know, the four lads from Liverpool. Yeah. I mean, that would probably be annoying because you want to hear them play, but you know, it, it's to be there in the middle of the rush of these screaming fans must've been crazy. It was. And that's why I was so excited as um, you know, I could go see hard days night and help the two Beatles movie. I was so excited to think, Oh, wow, I'm going to get to see them and, and, and hear the music, except that crazy enough in the theaters, all the teenage girls that were there were screaming too. So <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, that's how popular they were. You should have thrown your popcorn at them and go, "Be quiet." <laughs> <laughs> it would have 
DF, I think 300 Beetle Girls would have killed the one Beetle Girl. I'm glad you did. <laughs> we, eh, we could have taken them out. No, just kidding. Noko uh, no. uh, Ono gets a lot of hate for us, people saying that she broke up the Beatles. I, I don't think that's the case of it. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's bullshit. That nope, sorry. No. <laughs> nah. no, she didn't break up the Beatles. Not at all. And even though, as I say in my book, 99.9% of the Beatles fans at the time looked at her and said, oh, yeah, Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles. That's not what happened. That's not the case at all. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so either. Well, I think a lot of it is like tall tales that have been told through time from, you know, the, the group that grew up with them to the ones after who didn't. So it almost seems like Yoko would be the obvious scapegoat. But hmm. I mean, look, it's you kind of saw if you saw the Let It Be film, you saw it themselves. Uh, you saw it for yourself that they were just they were just past that point. You know, it's yeah. it, it had to have broken up for their relationships as friends to have succeeded. I'm ready to, you know, break. No, just kidding, Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I wanted to thank you, Lori, for telling the story. Um, I'm a Colombian Puerto Rican, so rock music wasn't a big thing at my house. Not that my parents had anything against it, just culturally not something they they listened to. And I remember when John Lennon was murdered. Um, I was 10 years old. I didn't really know who John Lennon was, and I had a passing of the Beatles it was just a year before I got into music I remember my mom being very sad about it my mother didn't listen to John Lennon so that's that was the impact that he had you know just as a human being but someone like my mother didn't own a single John Lennon album in her life you know or listen to the Beatles other than when you know walking down the street in the Bronx if they were on you know that that his murder I'm going to call it a murder because that's what it was and, you know, affected her. Um, also, I, I just wanted to thank you for sharing your personal story, not just to your interview with John Lennon, your experience with the Beatles and other musicians, just the fact that you shared your story. So thank you for your time and for sharing it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I hope you enjoyed the book. We, yeah, I, I, loved I loved it. it. I listened, well, actually uh, read it. Well, I listened to it because I have an app that reads the PDF file. So I listened to it at work and I actually listened to it twice. So it's a very good book and it's a very entertaining book as well. Well, Laurie, I'm going to order it for a physical copy because I'm one of those people who have to have a, hold it just like your library back there. I have to hold it in my hands. <laughs> I'll put it in my Beatles yeah. collection. So I'm going to read it carefully. This time I I read it, but I didn't read it as carefully as I normally would, you know, so I'm going to take the time to actually read, read it. And uh, I'll probably have more questions for you one of these uh, days after I reread it. Where can we get the book, Lori? Well, you can get it everywhere from my publisher's website to Amazon to the website of almost all the bookstores in the country uh, now. And then on December 8th, the official release date, you can hopefully go to all the bookstores that you like and, and get it in person if that's what you like. And I will be doing book launch and signing events. Um, the one that I already have uh, scheduled is December 8th, the 43rd anniversary day, um, here in Los Angeles at an incredible store on the Sunset Strip called Book Soup. 
And so that Friday night at 7 p.m., I'll be doing a book launch and signing event. And then hopefully um, soon after, shortly after, be traveling around the country and doing them um, in, in many other cities as well. And I should also say that what I'm currently doing right now uh, is um, recording the audiobook version of Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, my life leading up to John Lennon's last interview, which is um, pretty exciting, pretty difficult, but uh, I'm having fun in the recording studio doing it. Well, hopefully you come to New York, uh, Long Island. Um, I know there's a bookstore that does book signings and uh, out in Huntington and uh, about to come. Sorry, that bookstore is gone. Uh, it reopened. Oh, it did in a different location. Oh, all right. Cool. And if you do come this way, we'd love. I, I know Wayne and Man, I would love to come meet you in at, person. Maybe? It closed Nothing. like three or four years ago. And it reopened <laughs> after the pandemic in a new location. All right, Wait, cool. read a know. book. <laughs> well, awesome. That's great to hear. And if any of you have any suggestions about bookstores or venues, please email me. Let me know. And I will uh, try and contact them. All right. I'm more than call. happy to. Let's, yeah. Uh, Three Birds in Tampa, Florida. You'll love it. It's an indie store. It's, uh, you know, and uh, you'll love it. And I believe Kerouac sometimes hung out there before it became that. So it's right up your alley. You dig it. So. Great. And I will also be in Florida um, uh, early next year, um, the um, Beatles Beach Fest. So. All right, cool. That's something that, uh, that anybody will be attending. Hopefully I'll be able to meet you. Very cool. Right. Sounds good. Well, thank well, you. Lori, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. And thank you very much for having me. Yeah, Our uh, pleasure. Thank you. All, all the luck to you with the uh, with the book and everything. And hopefully uh, it sells good and hopefully people really like it. What do you want people to take from this book? I mean, because it's a really good book. I want them to know my story and to know how when you go from a difficult childhood upbringing to have success and have an exciting life that that it's possible and that it's something that that a lot of people get to do and um i'm excited to be able to write about it very cool all right again thank you very much Lori, and thank you everybody for watching please hit subscribe ratsalreview.com go order Lori's book confessions of a rock and roll name dropper links in the description links yeah they will not write this second but they will be there so but they'll be there and go order that book hit subscribe and we will see you guys next week bye bye demonic